So this last Sunday, uh, I was at our church in Dallas, and I was talking to a friend of mine, Mark, and Mark works in the upper echelon of finance. Uh, he has clients who are billionaires, and, uh, and then down from there. And, um, and he was telling me about a recent conversation he had with a billionaire client's friend of his. And his friend said, Mark, I want you to see this new piece of artwork that I recently purchased. And Mark said, that's really cool. That's awesome. It's amazing. And he said, you realize that's going to satisfy you for all of about two seconds. To which the billionaire replied, yeah, that's why I buy the next piece. And what I found fascinating about that story was that the billionaire didn't respond defensively. He didn't say, Mark, I have no idea what you're talking about. You realize that I'm a billionaire. I have everything that I could possibly want, and anything that I want and I don't have, I will get. There's nothing that I don't have. He didn't respond that way, and he didn't act confused. Mark, I don't know what you're referring to right now. What do you mean this won't satisfy me? Of course I'm satisfied. But instead he said, you're right, and I've got to do something about that. There's a, a universal longing. It's, it's a craving for something more, something that we can almost not um, put our finger on, almost like a, a, a name lost in the recesses of our mind, and we can't quite recall it. There's something more that each of us is looking for. And there's something inside of us that is drawing us to this search. And for some of us, uh, it is crushing and we live with it. It keeps us up at night. And for some of us, we have uh, sort of, it, it's a dull ache. We've sort of gotten used to it. And some of us, we figured out how to numb it, at least for a time. But all of us, at some point or another, we, we know what it's like to feel deeply dissatisfied with life and not really know why. All of us know, at some point or another, what it's like to lie awake at night and think, there's got to be more than this. There's this desire, this longing for something more, what Pascal referred to as the infinite abyss, and C.S. Lewis called it that terrible silence. Charles Taylor uh, is a philosopher, and he explains it this way, that, that this, this longing is a longing for transcendence. That in our world, uh, because in Western culture, Western society, we have stripped transcendence away, that we are left only with the material. We are left only with what we can perceive, what I can see and taste and touch, and even what I for myself can define as reality. And yet, there's this longing for transcendence. There's longing for this something more, even if we don't believe it's real. Thomas Aquinas, if you go back a few centuries before that, he addresses the same longing. He takes it from a slightly different perspective, but he's saying pretty much the same thing. He says that, that people, men and women, are created with this longing, that we are, we are always searching for, aiming at wholeness, at perfection. But that wholeness can only be found in the transcendent, in God himself, that the perfection we're longing for can only be found in the perfect God who created us. And as a result of sin, we are inclined away from God and towards all these other things that won't satisfy. In other words, we're trying to fill this infinite abyss with what is finite, 
we are trying to search for wholeness and we are looking in all of the wrong places. And even those of us who believe in the transcendent, I assume many of you here this morning, you believe in God, you, you know Jesus, you want to follow Him, and yet, along with everyone else, we keep looking in all the wrong places. Whether you're a believer or not, we have all tried to fill that gap, fill that space, and we've tried pretty much anything we can find, whether it's money or drugs or entertainment or work or religion or family or sex, you fill in the blank. We keep searching, and the terrible silence drones on. Why is that? I mean, as believers, if you know Jesus, we know the right answer. We know the only one who will satisfy us, but it's almost like we're trying to avoid him. It's almost comical the links will go to use anything but Jesus to fill that space. So this morning, I would like to look at a story that um, is probably familiar to some of you. Um, It's about a woman at a well. And she's minding her own business until Jesus interrupts her life. And what I love about this story, what I found so powerful about this story, is how hard she tries to avoid Jesus, but Jesus refuses to be avoided. And my hope for us this morning is that we will find Jesus to be unavoidable, and that we will stop trying to avoid him and instead be satisfied. So if you have your Bibles, we're in John 4. If you have your phone, like I said, iPad, and I think we're going to have the text up here as well, yeah. So this is what it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus, his reputation was growing and it was making things uncomfortable, and so he decided that it was time to move to Galilee. It It wasn't his time yet. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So here's a a quick geography lesson. So here's a map of Samaria. And so you'll notice that it's it's sandwiched in between Judea and Galilee, which were uh, Jewish territories. And Samaria was smack dab in the middle here. Samaria itself was not a politically recognized state. Uh, Samaria was actually kind of a shorthand for the whole region. It, It came about that this had once all been the kingdom of Israel, if you remember, under King David and King Solomon. And then it was divided in half into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And King Omri of the northern kingdom made his capital city, Samaria. But over time, it just kind of became Samaria, the whole region. And so when, when John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, that's not, or it's not entirely true. Because a number of Jews would actually go from Judea or from Galilee, whichever direction, and they would cross the Jordan River to the east and then make their way around Samaria. And the reason for that was because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. There's a lot of of reason for why they hated one another, um, and there's a lot that we don't know about that that hostility. Uh, Most of what we know uh, comes from Josephus, the Jewish historian. And what Josephus explains is that uh, the northern kingdom in about 720 uh, B.C. was overtaken by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians pulled a number of the Jewish people out into captivity, but they left the Jews who were politically loyal to Assyria. And then a bunch of Assyrians moved in, and they began to intermarry. And so when the Jews who were in captivity came back, they found these people, and they called them Samaritans, and they were considered to be politically treacherous, 
political traitors. They were half-breeds because they had intermarried with the Assyrians. And not only that, but uh, religiously, they were split as well. They were divided because the Samaritans only accepted the first five books, the Torah, of the Hebrew Scriptures and excluded the rest. Which basically gives them the triumvirate, right? This, these deep racial, uh, religious, and political divide. It doesn't get much uglier than that. It's like hitting for the cycle. It sounds like our country. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. And some people in reading what John says here, they, they see this as a foreshadowing of this divine appointment that Jesus is going to have. Or maybe John was simply saying that was the most direct route. But in either case... Jesus knows exactly where he's going and who he's going to speak with. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is about noon. So it's the heat of the day. It's not when you want to be outside. And so uh, we got to, quickly on the map here, you can see, uh, there's Sychar right there. It's kind of right dead center. In the next picture, there's a picture of Jacob's well. Uh, it's still there today. It's been uh, built up around by an Orthodox church. Uh, but traditionally, this is recognized as the well that was uh, dug by Jacob of Jacob and Esau fame. Remember the twins? And, uh, and then Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And then Jacob himself goes on to become the father of the 12 nations of Israel. In other words, guy's a big deal. This well was not built by a nobody. This well was not dug by a peasant who happened to be looking for water. This well was dug by Jacob. He's a big deal. He's somebody. All right, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? What are you thinking? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So already, John has given us quite a bit of information about the Samaritan woman, about this woman that that Jesus is meeting. First of all, it appears that she's something of a social outcast. She's been ostracized. And the reason we know that is because she is going by herself to this well to get water, and she's doing it in the heat of the day when she wouldn't need to uh, run into anyone. Normally, she would go with women in the cool of the day, early morning, but in this case, she is avoiding all people, or maybe she's been told to avoid everyone. So she's something of a social outcast. Secondly, she's Samaritan, which means she has lived her whole life with the baggage of being hated and despised on account of being considered something of a half-breed on the basis of her ethnicity and also her, uh, theoretically, her political leanings. So she's been despised, and and understand that in that area, um, she would not have lived this wonderfully insulated life, separate from Jews and Gentiles. Uh, She would have been having regular interactions with them, most likely, and so she would have regularly encountered people who, who she knew hated her. And then lastly, she is a she. And being female in that day and in that culture was not exactly the high life. Uh, she, as a, as a woman, had basically no legal standing, uh, was basically treated as property, couldn't own property, less than a second-class citizen. In fact, one of the ancient Jewish texts actually warns men against uh, wasting time speaking to women, even their wives, on the danger of, and I'm not making this up, being distracted from the Torah and going to hell. So husbands, next time you're not listening to your wife, just remember... 
honey, I would have loved to have listened to you and engaged with you in this stirring dialogue, but I didn't want to be distracted and go to hell. You should try that. We will identify your body later. (laughs) So she's a social outcast. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman, any one of which would be cause for Jesus to ignore her. And it would be cause for anyone else to have pretended that she didn't exist. So let's talk about this for a second. Um, Brian Fickert is uh, the author of When Helping Hurts, and he makes an, a, a very interesting and I think a very profound observation, and it's this. Um, in our culture today, um, because of the, the dualism of mind and body, we define poverty. We're going to talk about poverty for a second, but you'll see how this connects. We define poverty as the absence of material wealth. We view someone who is poor as someone who doesn't have enough things. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough toys. They don't have enough stuff. But what Fickard points out is that when you actually speak to people who are poor, if you talk to one of them, what they will describe far more often than they will talk about not having stuff, they will talk about a lack of dignity. They will talk about being ignored, treated as though they don't exist, treated as though they are less than. And his point is well made, and that's this, that, that the social, uh, social justice, right, the heart of that is not a restoration of material wealth, but it is at its heart a restoration of dignity to say, I see you, to say, you are human. And when Jesus speaks to this woman, understand, remember, she's an outcast, she's a Samaritan, and she's a woman, that in that moment, Jesus sees her, he's telling her effectively, you are real, you're valuable. I see you. You are not less than. You're of great value. And I think that should lead us to a few things. I think it should lead us very clearly to recognize that, that, that Jesus' example, it compels us to see people as they are. Not on the basis of prejudice, either on skin color or gender or anything else, but to see people as they are made in the image of God and having an infinite value to him. But to do that, it requires that we recognize the history and the ongoing struggle that many feel as a result of those very same prejudices, struggles that, to be honest, I don't fully and cannot fully understand. Uh, Frankly, as a white male, I am, pretty obvious. I have a pretty easy time being blissfully unaware of existing injustices in our society even still today. And understand, I'm not apologizing for being white and male. That is how God made me. Take it up with him. But Jesus, his example to us, if we are to follow him, requires us to at times step into spaces that we may find uncomfortable in order to address prejudices of our day. Because following Jesus never leaves us to the comfortable place. Jesus doesn't play this in the comfortable way. Jesus could have simply ignored her. He could have been neutral. He could have pretended that she didn't exist. For him to perpetuate the ongoing prejudices of his day, he didn't have to throw rocks at her. He didn't have to despise her or yell obscenities at her or try to hold her down. He didn't have to do any of that. All he had to do was simply say nothing. 
But by speaking to her, by addressing her, he confronts two of the predominant prejudices of his culture. And if we're to follow Jesus, what choice do we have? If we're to follow Jesus, then he does not leave me the option of being neutral. He doesn't leave me the option of being silent. Um, I, I realize that that is not always popular when I share it. Um, but I don't see any other way to read this. I don't see any other way to read what Jesus does here in his example. If we're to follow him, then it means to follow him. Now that I've offended probably some of you, just the silence, now I've brought this very heavy weight. Some of you are like, man, I'm glad this guy's not a pastor here anymore. We'll keep going. So verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman, I've read this before, we're going to read it again, said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. Remember, Jacob's a big deal. As did his sons and his livestock. So you have to love this woman because she's tough. I mean, she's an outcast. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman and she's feisty. She's not going to take this from anybody. Some guy walks in here talking crazy about the gift of God and living water and she's not about to take nonsense from anybody. Her life's been too hard for that. So at this point, understand that when she hears living water, she's not hearing what you and I hear. We hear living water, and we're like, ooh, it's all mystical and living water. What is that? The same word for living here can also be running. So what she hears him saying is there's a running stream. I know where there's a running stream. And she says, really? If there's a running stream, why did we dig the well, genius? And you don't even have a bucket. So he's not just male, he's not just Jewish, he's stupid. But Jesus keeps trying. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 15, and the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now she's just mocking him. She's being completely sarcastic. Oh, really? You have this magical water. I'll take some of that. Sure, idiot. Isn't she great? I like her. Jesus does too. So Jesus is going to take a different tactic here. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Well, that just got uncomfortable. See, up to this point, it was kind of friendly banter. I've got living water. You're an idiot. But now Jesus pulls the rug out from under her. And now we know why she goes to the well alone. Because she's not just a Samaritan. She's not just a woman. She's made a mess of her life, and she has a broken heart. 
She has looked for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And men, by the way, that's always a bad idea. As a man, I will tell you, don't try to find your satisfaction in men. She's tried that and has only led to disappointment. And some of you, you know the story. You've tried to find satisfaction in all different areas and it has only led to disappointment to the point now that your life is such a mess that you think, how could Jesus ever want to talk to me? How could God ever love me? I mean, I know Jesus loves everybody, but come on, me? Could Jesus really want to talk to you? But see, Jesus shouldn't have been talking to her either. I mean, see, culturally, what Jesus should have done was when he saw her coming towards the well, he should have moved about 20 feet away, away excuse me, and pretended that she didn't exist. Just give her space. That's what he was supposed to do. So you can imagine her walking up to the well going, is this guy going to move? He's not moving. I don't know why he's not moving. What's his deal? Jesus isn't moving. He's staying right there. Not moving. Getting awkward. Still not moving. Because Jesus wanted to talk to the Samaritan woman with a broken heart. What's interesting is that by this point, she probably wishes desperately that he'd moved on, correct? I wish this guy would go away, which is how we feel about God, right? I wish God would give me a little bit more space. I wish he would move away. Just give me a little more distance here because I do not want him to address what's actually going on in my life. I don't want him to see the brokenness that I have. And and frankly, I don't want to have to deal with my own brokenness. And just like that, we are right back in the Garden of Eden sowing fig leaves to hide ourselves from God and ourselves. Hello? But God won't leave us alone. And Jesus is unavoidable. So what do you do then? Well, then you try to change the subject. Verse 19, And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So we don't have time to unpack this fully, but understand one of the religious uh, disputes between the Samaritans and the Jews had to do with the place of worship. And so the Samaritans uh, believed that worship had to be at Mount Gerizim, that that was the God-ordained place of worship. But for the Jews, it was Jerusalem. And so she's asking, Jesus, which one is it? She doesn't know he's Jesus. Sir, prophet, which one is it? Now, maybe she's just curious. I mean, how often do you have a prophet in front of you? Seems like the right time to ask those hard questions. But I think she's just changing the subject because we'd much rather speak about something like theology than actually address what's going on in ourselves. And so Jesus, I love his answer because he kind of plays along, but not really. Look at what he says. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And there is no way she can keep up with that. There's no way she has any idea what he's talking about. I mean, it would take us days if we wanted to, hours at least today, to unpack everything that Jesus is saying here. Books have been written. Jesus is essentially saying, you want to play this game? We'll play this game. You want to talk theology? I can talk theology. But what he's also letting her know is that he's out of her league. She can't possibly keep up. In other words, hey, you want to play this game? We'll play this game. Here you go. And by the way, this is game over. 
You can't possibly keep up with this. And what's crazy is it works. She's like, you're right, it's game over. Because look at what she says next. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And it's almost like this is the question she's been avoiding the whole time. It's almost as though it was sort of always in the back of her mind that her her heart was whispering, but hope against hope finally builds up the courage to say, are you him? Are you the one I've been waiting for? So a long time ago, Carrie and I got married. And um, it was February 12th. And the next day we set out on our honeymoon and we were going to drive to New Mexico. We were in Arkansas at the time. We were driving across Texas to get to New Mexico to go skiing. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been uh, to Texas. Texas is pretty diverse in uh, in its landscape. Uh, But West Texas looks something like this. We got a picture. This is West Texas. It's pretty desolate, not a lot out there. Now, I've never driven through West Texas before, neither had Carrie, and so my road trip experience had taught me that there are exits every couple of miles, and that at every exit, there's a gas station and fast food. And so we are driving um, pretty late by this point in the evening. We get through Amarillo, which is kind of right at the top of uh, Texas, and uh, the gas gauge is showing it's getting a little bit low, but I'm like, we got lots left here, and you know, there's just more exits ahead of us, no big deal. So we keep driving, about 10.30 at night at this point, and we start driving, and there's no more exits. And you keep thinking there's going to be another exit, but there's no exit. And when you find an exit, there's no gas station. And when you find a gas station, it's closed. And we just keep driving. And by this point, it's like 11.30, 12 at night. And I'm starting to get legitimately worried because the gas gauge light has actually come on. I don't know how far we have. And we have no food. We have no water. We're just, we got nothing. And there's no cars on the the road either because we're in West Texas. I won't keep you in suspense. We made it. We were okay. There was actually a gas station just over that next ridge. Not a great story. Here's my point. That was the closest I have ever come to crossing a desert without water. Most of us in this room have no idea what it means to truly thirst. Most of us have no idea the value of water. I mean, think about the last time you were truly thirsty. Like that time when your tongue was swelled up in your mouth and your mouth was all, you know, um, like uh, cotton balls and, and you're a little dizzy and hallucinating and dehydrated. Yeah, I can't think of a time that that's happened. I can always turn on the faucet or open the fridge or buy a bottle of water. I, I can't appreciate that. But if you live in the Middle East, or if you live in West Texas perhaps, where it's arid and dry and there's desert, water is life. Thirst can kill you. What Jesus is sharing echoes what the biblical writers say throughout Scripture. 
I mean, against this backdrop, it's not surprising that biblical writers, whenever they talk about water, oftentimes they use it as a spiritual metaphor for something that satisfies in a way that that gets at the deepest longings of your soul, that's life-giving. And so Jesus, when he speaks of this living water, he's saying something incredibly profound, both about the water and about her, about us. That there's a thirst that we have that is deeper and more significant than any physical thirst. This longing that every single one of us have that that we cannot satisfy with mere physical water or anything else that we find in this world, that there's this spiritual longing that is real for every single one of us and it can only be satisfied by this living water and without it, we are as good as dead. We are like sojourners in a desert without water. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We are walking dead until Jesus shows up. And he says, I've got water for you, and I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to save you. See, what Jesus is offering here is life, the life that is found in him alone, that if she will only believe, if she will see him as he is and turn to him, then then he will give her this life, that he will pour the spirit of the living God into her heart, and it will regenerate her life. It will refresh her life in a way that we can't even imagine And it will flow through her entire being, culminating in eternal life. That this satisfaction that he offers is real now, and it just gets better. It begins to flow. It begins to change her, and it brings her back to life in forever. And that's the hope in eternity. But here's the catch. It's too good to be true. Doesn't that sound too good to be true? See, some of you have been going to church for so long and you hear the gospel, you kind of get used to it. But if I come to you and say, I've got this eternal life thing, you can live forever, it sounds too good to be true. And for a woman like this, who has been this burned and this hurt, you don't just accept offers when somebody throws them at you. You have to know who's offering. Because you have to know the offer is good. And the only way you know if the offer is good is by who's doing the offering. It's like if I get one of those emails from the prince from Timbuktu who's got, you know, a fortune trapped in financial international banking laws and just needs my bank account number? Yeah, not going to reply to that. But if my dad calls me and says, Lucas, you're not going to believe this. Somebody left us a ton of money. They died. I didn't know it was this relative, and I can't explain it, but you're just going to have to trust me. Uh, Do you have a bank routing number? I'd be like, do you have a pen ready? You see? This is why Jesus, when he first addresses her, do you remember what he said? He says, if you only knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for water. If you only knew, if you only knew who was doing the offering, you would say yes. If you knew who I was, then you would take me up on this offer. You're you're wondering if I am greater than Jacob? Seriously, you have no idea. If you knew who was offering, you'd say yes. A Jeffrey Bull I think describes this really beautifully in the scene. Let me read this to you. If she could have just seen then what Jesus saw, she would have glimpsed another noonday when the sun would mourn in blackness and this same stranger cry out from a Roman cross, I thirst. She would have seen him in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, the smitten Christ from whom the living waters flow. He was thirstier than she knew. He was speaking for the very heart of God. He was moving in the travail of his soul and looked for satisfaction in the restoration of the sin-scarred 
woman if she could only see him. If she could only see him as he actually is. If she could only see how he loves her and how he cared for her. If she could only see how he thirsted for her salvation. If she could only see how he'd endured the, that terrible silence when he, he hung on the cross and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me and got no answer? If she only knew how he had emptied himself so that she could be filled. If she only knew how he had followed that abyss as deep and as far as it would go so that she would never be lost in it, then she would say yes. Some of you, you have this longing. Like you feel it. Some of you have numbed it. Some of you are trying to pretend that it doesn't exist. But it's there. And maybe the offer sounded too good to be true. Maybe you didn't want God to have to actually deal with the mess that is going on in your life right now because that's part of the deal. But for whatever reason, you've been avoiding Jesus. And what I want you to hear right now is that in that longing, God is whispering to you, come and drink. That when you're lying awake at night and you're wondering, is there something more that God is whispering to you right then? That he's saying, he's saying I'm the one you're searching for. I'm the one your heart is longing for. As hard as you have searched, I have searched for you. As hard as you have longed for something to fill you up, I have longed for you with an unrelenting love. And I have torn open time and space and I have come so that I could get you and I have, I have beaten death so that I could get my hands on you to save you. That in that terrible silence that you feel at times and that dissatisfaction that you cannot explain that God is whispering to you, come and drink, find life, be satisfied. Never thirst again. It is so tempting to avoid Jesus, and we're really proficient at it. I'm really good at it. And I can find all kinds of ways to entertain myself and distract myself and just stuff that sense of longing down a little bit more like I said at the beginning, my hope is that we would find Jesus to be unavoidable and that we would stop trying. It's almost comical how we try to avoid him if it weren't so tragic. To stop trying to avoid him and instead hear his invitation. Come and drink. Do you know who he is this morning? Do you know who's making this offer? He loves you. He cares for you. Lord, we love you. We say that as best we know how, and we say that only as an echo of your love for us. Because your love is greater than anything we can imagine. And we take it for granted and we push it aside because we don't want you to see us as we are. Heaven forbid you'd see us without our hair done and our makeup on. And we push you away and we try to avoid you. but you love us in a way that that changes us forever. You love us in a way that our heart is longing for, our heart has been searching for since we were the day we were born, in a way that we are craving. Lord, I just pray for each one of us this morning that Lord, that we would just come to you honestly, even right now as we're praying that we would come to you honestly 
Say, Lord, I've been trying to, I've been trying to escape. I've been trying to run away. I've been trying to avoid you. Yeah, I know a lot about you. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I, I know the drill. But I've tried to keep you at arm's distance. Or maybe there's somebody here who literally has never had a conversation with you. And I pray that this would be that moment when they say, okay, you're making this offer. I want to know who you are. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, just a, a commitment to you and to the gospel because it's the only answer there is. We just pray this all in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.